The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. The rest of us, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, if you're just visiting, we are going through the book of Acts, uh, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, written by Luke, who was a missionary partner of the Apostle Paul. His profession, he was a physician, among other things, highly educated. And God used Luke, as he was guided by the Holy Spirit, to write down the beginnings of the early church, the first 30 years or so from the time Christ rose again and ascended into heaven till the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And God has preserved that for us for 2,000 years. And it comes to us in what we call the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, 2,000 years later. And not only did God, through his Holy Spirit, superintend Luke as he wrote it to make sure that it was written authoritatively and without error, God in his providence has also preserved the truth of it for 2,000 years for his church, his people, and until he comes again. So we can be assured that what uh, Luke writes here is true history. It's factual. He didn't make mistakes. He continues to talk about geography and cities and people that we know exist historically. Some of these places, many of these places can be visited today. And where we're at now is the church started in Jerusalem and began to be blessed by God and explode and grow all throughout Jerusalem, beyond the vicinity of Jerusalem, trickling over into nearby Samaria and beyond Judah and going up north, just as Jesus said. He said that you need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so that's really one of the things that Luke is doing is showing how Christ's command is being obeyed. It starts in Jerusalem and will end up in the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the emphasis in the first part of the book was on the 12 apostles in Jerusalem, the gospel to the Jews. The second part of the book of Acts is with the apostle Paul, the gospel to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And so we are now in the ministry of the apostle Paul. He's been on one missionary journey, chapter 13 and 14, that lasted about two years, where he traveled about 1,200 miles and went and planted churches, mostly in pagan areas that had never heard the gospel before. And after two years, came back, took a break, and then God led him to embark on his second missionary journey. And that's where we are now. The second missionary journey is mostly chapter 16, 17, and 18. And on the second missionary journey, Paul will travel almost 3,000 miles. He will go into Europe for the first time in history with the gospel, which is what we saw last week. And that's actually where he is today in the city of Philippi. He will uh, plant many churches along the way. He'll write some New Testament books along the way. He'll be gone on this mission trip for three years away from his home church, putting his life on the line. He'll be traveling with familiar companions like Luke, the physician, uh, Timothy, young disciple, Silas, his new partner, and actually several others along the way. So right now we are in Paul's second missionary journey. Last week we saw how... God was guiding Paul at the very beginning of his journey, and Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, which was a very significant city, and and God said no by preventing him from going there. And two times we saw that the Spirit of God told Paul, no, don't go that way, don't go that way. And so one of the principles we learned last week is that God answers our prayers, or sometimes God guides us by saying no. No is not always a bad answer. As a matter of fact, this week, think about it. Did God ever say no to you this last week and prevent you from doing something? 
If he did, and you're conscious of it, you should thank him. God, thank you for saying no. Thank you you didn't give me that job. Thank you that you did this, and you didn't let me go there. And thank you. That's one of the ways that God communicates or directs us through providence and circumstances in life that ultimately he is in charge of. And so Paul then uh, is heading, can't go this way, can't go that way. So now God is going to send him to Europe, to Macedonia, which we would say is modern-day Macedonia. And he's, his destination is a very prominent city called Philippi. Philippi is still in existence today, 2,000 years later. It was a prominent city in Paul's day. It was a Roman colony, even though it wasn't in Italy. It was a Roman colony, meaning it had very significant rights and privileges endowed upon it from the Roman government. They didn't do that to very many cities outside of Italy. And so they had tremendous independence. And because it was a Roman colony, the city of Philippi, It was heavily populated with Roman soldiers and many times retired Roman soldiers. And it was pagan to the core from Greek paganism and Roman paganism. And so Paul enters into that city we saw last week and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message that is foreign to most of the citizens in that area. Most, not all, but most. And so the reception he gets is diverse. Some welcome his message and embrace it and believe in Christ. Some find it odd, but they're curious, so they're hesitant. And others are angered. And they become literally physically violent. That's how people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that's true today. That's the same response that we will get from people even today. So let's go ahead and look at it. As Paul now has entered into the city of Philippi, this pagan city, And he finds an audience. He preaches to just a few ladies. Uh, One lady in particular is overcome by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She repents. She believes in the gospel. She gets saved. She is baptized. She invites the apostle Paul and his companions into her home. She's a woman of means. She has money. She's a prominent woman in Philippi, even though she's not from Philippi. She's doing business in Philippi. And she makes good money. But she's a woman who feared God. And now she's a a born-again Christian who knows Jesus Christ personally and immediately invites Paul and his missionary team into her home. So that's where we left off. This incredibly godly woman who is one of the first fruits of the gospel ministry of the apostle Paul in Philippi. Now we're going to make a huge transition from this incredibly godly woman to the very antithesis, a very godless woman who encounters Paul. So let's go ahead and pick that up. And that's really our sermon of the day as Paul continues ministry in Philippi. We don't know how long he was there. Uh, They were there for, quote, some time, which could be months, maybe. We know he planted a church there at this time and then followed up by writing the book of Philippians. So they had some tremendous success. They're having sweet fellowship with these new Christians and this woman of God named Lydia. And so the sermon today is called Satanic Opposition. Paul's second missionary journey, Satanic Opposition. Things don't always go rosy when you become a Christian. Things went well. Lydia responded, as did some of her friends in her whole household. And now, anytime something's going good in ministry or with biblical truth or people are getting saved, you can bet that Satan is going to intervene. Satan is going to create a stink. And that's what we're going to see here. Satanic opposition in the ministry. Follow along as I read Acts 16, 16 through 24, this unit, as it goes together. So it happened after spending time with Lydia and seeing this great salvation come to her home. The next event, verse 16, it happened that as we, we, this is Luke writing, we, meaning Luke and Paul, 
and Silas and young Timothy, our missionary team. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer there in Philippi by the river where Lydia, we met her for the first time. So it became a a place of Bible study and regularity. So while they're going there, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. So a demon-possessed young woman confronted them who was bringing her masters. She was a slave. Somebody owned her. She was property. She worked for her masters. uh, And she was bringing her masters much profit from fortune-telling, telling the future. Palm reading. Who knows what she was doing? Verse 17. And following after Paul and us. And so this lady, she meets Paul. She sees Paul preaching, teaching, evangelizing, public preaching. Uh, they heard about him. He's got uh, new things to say. And so she's following Paul now. She attaches herself to Paul and his missionary team and begins following them on a regular, continual basis. Could have been day after day, after day, after day. And while she's following Paul and his missionary team around, She kept crying out. So she was repeatedly saying something. What was that? These men are bond servants of the most high God. Announcement. These men are bond servants of the most high God. That sounds good, doesn't it? It's true. Paul and his team were bond servants or slaves of the one and only most high God. So free advertising from this lady. These men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, the only way to salvation. Wow, she got some good theology, you would think. Well, that's at first blush. Then it's kind of interesting. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. Cool, Paul, isn't that great? She's going around and advertising for you. She's a human megaphone. She continued doing this for many days, but, uh uh-oh, Paul was greatly annoyed. He, he did not like this. Well, why not, Paul? She's saying that you believe in the Most High God, the only true God. That city's filled with all kinds of false pagan mythological gods. And she's saying, your way is the only way of salvation, which is true. Paul, why are you annoyed? Well, Paul knew more than the average human being. Paul was an apostle. There weren't many apostles. There were 12 apostles of Jesus. Then Paul was designated as the apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. The 12 apostles and Paul, the 13th apostle, to the Gentiles. As an apostle, he was responsible for laying the foundation of the church. As an apostle, he was gifted with supernatural amazing gifts that were revelatory in nature. He would get divine revelation from God and from Jesus. God would talk to Paul. God would give Paul visions. And give him direct revelation. Thus saith the Lord. God gave Paul the ability to write down New Testament books. We can't do that today. God gave Paul and as an apostle miracles. And the ability to do signs and wonders that we can't do today. I know I can't do today. God gave Paul and the apostles these unique supernatural miraculous gifting abilities. To confirm that their message was true. And the signs of an apostle according to 2 Corinthians 12.12. Were signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. The Apostle Paul also had the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. The discerning of spirits. It's not discernment. It's not the gift of discernment. It's the discerning of spirits. What's that? It's the ability, as God leads, to discern truth from error when a so-called prophet was speaking. And because Paul had that gift, he could confirm and validate when a true prophet was speaking divine revelation in his day. They didn't have the New Testament. And Paul had that gift. And when somebody said, thus saith the Lord, or they spoke by 
the oracles of God, yet they spoke error. Paul could discern that as he was gifted, and he would say, that is false. That is not true. That's a unique gift. That's an apostolic gift. That's a revelatory gift. And that is the gift that Paul is using here that we don't. This is not normative for all Christians. I can't go around and meet, read people's minds. Although my wife can read my mind sometimes. That's what happens when you're married for a long time. But anyway, different story. So she continued doing this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed because he knew something was up. Oh, looks good on the outside, speaks truth on the outside, bold on the outside, courageous on the outside. Accurate theology, apparently on the outside. Yeah, on the outside. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit. So he turned to the woman and he spoke to the spirit. What spirit? The spirit that was inside this woman, the demon that was inside this woman. That's what Paul could discern that others could not. He discerned this woman was demon possessed. Wow. Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantaneously at, it came out at that very moment. So this young slave girl could have been a teenager. Imagine possessed by a demon, tormented by a demon, darkened by Satan himself, slave to Satan, slave to her masters, dying in her sin. And she is liberated and freed instantaneously by the power of in the name of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. Verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope for profit of money had been gone. See, when she was demon possessed, she was doing the work of the devil. Ripping people off, manipulating people, actually using de- demonic power to do supernatural things like telling the future and fortunes. And people were amazed and mesmerized by that. They thought she was almost a, a, a goddess. And they were in awe of her and they were willing to pay money to her to have their fortunes told, their futures predicted. And she's actually working for her masters and they are the ones profiting. They're making a lot of money off of religion. That still goes on today. But once this demon left, she's not going to obey Satan anymore. She's not going to obey her masters anymore to do this dirty, manipulative, evil, wicked deed. She's a changed person. That's why she stopped. And so the money stopped. The profit stopped. The profit was gone. They got mad. The masters, they were in this for the money. They weren't excited and thankful that the woman has been set free by a demon. They didn't care for her as a human being. The fact that she's made in the image of God. They should have. That should have been their response. Oh, thank God. We thought this lady was uh, controlled by uh, the evil one and that she was mentally um, messed up and uh, she is danger to herself and thank you for setting her free. No compassion whatsoever. They just care about money. This is the epitome of avarice and greed, self-centeredness. So instead of rejoicing and celebrating the fact that the woman is set free from a demon, they just got mad. And they, they got so angry, they seized Paul and Silas. They literally arrested Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Dragged them before the authorities. Took them to court. No warrant. No questioning. Guilty on the spot. Verse 20. When they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. And they are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Verse 22. The crowd got riled up. This happened publicly. So they, they get the crowd all riled up. The rabble mob. 
with lies and emotion and deception. And the crowd rose up together because they're all Romans. Yeah, we're Romans. They're nationalists. They're anti-Semitic. Down with the Jews. So the crowd rose up together against Paul and Silas. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them. So they ripped the clothes off of Paul and Silas on the spot. Commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Oh, uh, sorry, back to verse 22. Ripped their clothes off, proceeded to have them and ordered them to be beaten with rods or with sticks. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Wow. What was their crime? Why did they get arrested? Why did they get no trial? Why did they get no hearing, no say whatsoever? All they did was talk about Jesus. All they did was do a good deed to a, a woman. Showed an act of love through God and the loving Lord Jesus Christ by setting her free. That was their crime. They were practicing Christianity. They were believing in the Bible. They were trusting God. They were walking in faith. That was their crime. Let's go back now into a little more detail on these four points that I've laid out for you in the narrative. Um, Starting with point number one versus really zooming in on verse 16 and 17. There's really just one main truth I want to highlight in verse 16 and 17 that I thought would be just a good practical reminder for all of us. So today we're just going to look at verses 16 and 17. And point number one is the deception, I call it. The deception. Satan masquerades in truth. Satan robes himself in the truth. That's how he's most effective, by the way. That's how Satan operates. If you work in, I have a friend that worked in a bank for years. And he would come across fake money, fake bills. Fake 20s, fake 50s. And he said, the, the best fake, the most deceptive are the fake bills that were closest to the original. The closer you could mimic the original, the better the deception. Start handing people Monopoly money that's pink. They're not going to fall for it. You hand them a 50 that is almost identical. And it's like, wow, I can't tell the difference. That's what Satan does. The more he can masquerade as truth, the more effective he will be. That's how he operates. And that's what he does here. And that's what Paul knew. And that's why Paul knew it was so dangerous. The deception. Let me ask you a few questions. These are kind of diagnostic questions. Answer these in your own heart or in your own head, okay, uh, before we go on. They're real simple. Either yes or no or just short answers. In your own heart. This is a diagnostic quiz on Satanology. How's your Satanology? Well, let's find out. Question number one. Do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe that the devil is real? Do not answer out loud. Answer in your own heart. Well, if you're like the average American, you would probably say no. A real being, a real person. And there's more and more people in the Christian church, in the Christian world, in the evangelical world, who are saying that Satan is not real. So that's highly significant. Number two, when was the last time you actually thought about Satan before this sermon today? When was the last? See if you can go back. If you're, I'm talking to Christians primarily. When was the last time you thought about Satan? Any thought? If it's been a week or if you can't remember the last time, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. He's being successful already. Number three. When was the last time you prayed for protection against Satan? Consciously. 
Dear God, in all your prayers, Father in heaven, thy will be done. Glory to your name. You pray your prayer. Forgive me of my sin and protect me from the evil one. Luke chapter 11. That's what Jesus said. So the disciples, the believers, the believing disciples went to Jesus and said, Jesus, we've watched you pray. We don't pray like you. The, the Pharisees don't pray like Nobody prays like you. Teach us to pray. So he did. Luke 11, Matthew 6. And Jesus said, here's how you should pray. You pray to the Father. You pray to him first. You give him the glory. You don't use I, 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 and me, me, me in your prayers. That's self-centered. You're part of a spiritual family. And here's an order of priority and how the things you should pray. He didn't give that prayer so that it would be memorized as an incantation to repeat it over and over again mindlessly. That isn't, we're not supposed to pray the Our Father over and over and over and over and over again, as is, without even thinking. He's laying down principles of prayer. Here are the things you need to pray about. Here's the way you need to approach God. He is holy. And that's how it starts. And you go through your prayer. And then at the end of the prayer, and deliver us from evil, Jesus said in Matthew 6. Luke gets more specific. And deliver us from the evil one. And by the way, how often are we supposed to pray according to Jesus in Matthew 6 and Luke 11? In that prayer, Jesus said very specifically, when you pray, pray, give us this day our daily bread. If you're going to God praying that prayer, that implies you are praying every single day. So if you are a Christian, you should be praying daily. That's what Jesus was saying. And you're praying about these things. Every single day, you're giving glory to God. You're asking for his help. You're asking for forgiveness. You're also asking for his protection. You're also interceding on behalf of others. So how often should Christians be praying about the devil and protection for them? Every single day. That's what Jesus said. That's why when I asked you, when was the last time you consciously remember praying about the devil? Protection from the devil. If it's been so long you can't remember, Satan is already being successful in attacking you according to the mandates of how we should pray as jesus said number four do you have a proper and full theology of satan maybe you're on the first question do you believe in Satan? yes i do well that's probably hopefully good it actually depends on what you believe about satan there are some people who have a very kooky view of satan there are christians who have a very weird kooky view about satan So my question is, do you have a proper view of Satan and a fully orbed view of Satan that is fully informed by the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation because Satan is in Genesis and he is in Revelation? It doesn't do good to have a wrong view of Satan. That's how he will be effective against you, thinking things that aren't true about him. You want a good book? Uh, Richard Mayhew, Unmasking Satan. Great book. John MacArthur's New Systematic Theology. Great section on the theology of Satan. Be informed. Number five. When was the last time you thought Satan might be actively involved in a problem that you are facing in your life right now? That, that's a great question. It's a practical question. Um, you are in some intense relationships with people, family members, or somebody at work. Maybe in your own marriage. Maybe with your children. Have you thought at all throughout the process that maybe Satan is involved sowing seeds of destruction, of deception, of division in those relationships? That's how he works. So think of all the trials in your life. So you've got to have a balanced view of Satan. Uh, on the one hand, uh, 
you can't just totally ignore him and say he doesn't exist or he's a myth or that kind of thing. Or he's just generic evil, bad things. Some Christians hold that view. They don't think properly about Satan, that he exists, that he's real. Then there's the other extreme about Christians who get overly um, enthusiastic about Satan and they try to find Satan under every rock. And he's to blame for everything. And I said, and Satan made me do it. Every sin I commit, Satan. No, Satan didn't make you or me commit any sin. He is not responsible. We're responsible for our own sin. That's clear from the Bible. So we need to have a balanced view. But we, need to, we do need to be conscious of Satan and aware of Satan because Scripture says be aware of Satan and pray for protection against him. But at the same time, we're not looking for Satan under every rock and he's involved in this and he's involved in that like some Christians who have actually taught things like Satan's responsible for everything in your life that's bad, including anytime you're sick. Like the demon of post-nasal drip. And I am not kidding. And find somebody near you who can cast out the demon of post-nasal drip. Be gone! When actually, no, you should go to the doctor and get some medicine for your post-nasal drip. The fall is sufficient for some of our ailments. You don't blame Satan for everything. I've got a sinus infection right now. It's not a demon in my nose or my head. I'm sick as a result of this fallen world in which we live. So anyway, be thinking about Satan. Be aware of Satan. And uh, probably the most important thing to know about Satan, according to the Bible, is Satan is most interested in tampering with our what? Thinking. First and foremost, he is trying to attack the mind, the way we think, create deception, wrong information, a lot of truth with a little bit of a lie. That's how he's most effective. That's what he does. He toys with our thinking. He does it through other people. He does it through advertising. He does it through the television, through radio. Everywhere we take in information, Satan is up there supernaturally trying to tinker with everything so that he might deceive the masses. That is his goal. Here's a summary of realities of Satan that we need to be thinking about. According to the Bible, it's quick, ready? Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel. He is finite. He is completely evil. He is incorrigible. He will never be saved or repent. He is the leader of demons. He is a liar. He is a tempter. He is a murderer. He is a spirit. He is invisible. He can possess others, including human beings and animals. He is a person or has personhood, although he doesn't have a body. He has a superior intellect. He has emotions. He has volition or a will and the ability to make decisions that he is accountable for. He's a moral being, a corrupt moral being. He's supernatural. He's powerful. He's more powerful than the average human. He uses demons and people primarily to do his dirty deeds. He rules a vast spiritual invisible domain and the earth is a part of that, he is subject to God and can do nothing apart from God's allowance or permission. He can't possess believers or Christians because they're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. He can harass believers and deceive them and torment them. He is best dealt with, resisted by the word of God, biblical prayer, walking in faith and obedience in your life. In addition to worship of the true God in spirit and truth and also fellowship with other believers. You do those six things, you will be protected from Satan and his attacks. You neglect those, you subject yourself to his temptations and attacks. His fate is sealed. He was judged at the cross. He will be bound during the millennium in the future. Ultimately, he will be cast into hell forever. God created hell 
for Satan and his angels. So God will deal with Satan once and for all, ultimately forever. That's awesome. But like I said, not everybody believes in Satan. Not everybody thinks. I mean, there are people, imagine here in Northern California, there are all kinds of uh, Christian churches, denominational churches, where the pastors and the leaders and the elders, they literally do not believe Satan is a real person. And what you see in the Bible is fictitious. So if they were to read Acts 16 and hear Paul sees this demon-possessed girl who's speaking out in a demonic voice, crying out at the top of her song, these men are slaves of the most high God. (laughs) It's really what was going on. We take this literally. This really happened. This woman was demon-possessed. Whereas countless churches are, you know, well, this is just symbolic and figurative. This really didn't happen because, after all, we know here in the Silicon Valley, we believe in science and modern technology. We know that these references to uh, demons and Satan, that's uh, symbolic of generic evil we face in our lives. So this really doesn't happen today. Really, that's what people are being taught in churches. No, no, no. This is what Luke said. He was an eyewitness. This is how it happened. This is real. The Bible is clear. This is a no-brainer. This should not even be a controversial issue in the church. Is Satan real? Does he attack Christians? Is he trying to lead unbelievers to hell for all eternity? Yes. And is everything described about him in the Bible true exactly as it says? Yes. From the beginning to the end, 54 times Satan is referred to in the Old Testament, 54 times. The most explicit is Job. You read Job chapter 1, tells a story. Job was a real guy, one of the first people in the Bible, the oldest book in the Bible. And it tells a story. Job was a righteous man. He had 10 kids. God was blessing him. He was faithful. He loved his wife. He loved his family. And then all of a sudden, it says that the sons of God went before God in heaven. And Satan was there. And God starts talking to Satan. Have you considered my, my servant Job? And then Satan starts lying and Satan wants to attack Job. And there's a back and forth. Did this really happen? Is this literal? Did, was there really a guy named Job? Did Satan really talk to God about Job like that? Did, did Satan really, as a demonic, supernatural, fallen angel, actually attack Job literally the way the book of Job described? Yeah, absolutely. Satan is real. So that's the Old Testament, 54 times. Then you go to the New Testament. Uh, Jesus made reference to Satan as a real being 25 times. 25 times out of 29 times in the Gospels. Every one of the New Testament writers refers to the devil as a real being and a real person. Every single New Testament writer. So listen to what the authors of Hebrews says about the devil. See if he believes in the devil. Jesus became flesh and blood. Jesus became a human being. The almighty eternal God of the universe who was uncreated and had no body before he came down to earth through Mary. That Jesus created the world, then came to the world in which he created, took on a human body, flesh and blood, as the God-man. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus became flesh and blood, became a human being, so that, for the purpose of, in order that, through death, his death on the cross, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Who's that? That is the devil. Why did Jesus come into this world in which he created, take on a human body, live a perfect life without sin as the God-man, and willingly, voluntarily go to the cross and be executed as a criminal, even though he never did anything wrong? He did it because he purposed to do it. He did it because he planned to do it. He did it because it needed to be done. He did it in fulfillment to the plan of the Father from eternity past. He did it as a sacrifice for sinners. And part of that was to render inoperative Satan himself. Jesus died on the cross to deal with the devil. Jesus died on the cross, 
that sins might be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to glorify the Father. Jesus died on the cross for a lot of reasons, but right here it says Jesus died on the cross to deal with the devil and render him powerless. That's the author of Hebrews. The author of uh, Jude says this, Michael the archangel, that's one of God's angels, when he disputed with the devil. Michael the archangel at some time in the past during the days of Moses, Michael up there, invisible angel in the spirit realm, had a fight and an argument with the devil. And they're duking it out up in the spirit. This is not science fiction. This is real. This is in the Bible. Michael the archangel duking it out with Satan. They're having a dispute and an argument. What are they fighting about? Well, Michael the archangel disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses when Moses died. So Moses dies, and Satan wants the body. And the archangel said, no way. You ain't taking it. I want the body. And they're literally fighting over Moses' body. And one thing, Michael the archangel, he knew his boundaries. He knew that Satan was powerful, so he was cautious. And it says that Michael the archangel did not dare pronounce against the devil a railing judgment. But he, he deferred that to God. God, I'll let you deal with the devil. So Jude believed in a real devil. James, the book of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Several times in his epistle, he refers to the devil. Here's one, James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist him? Those six things I mentioned earlier. Be in the word, be in prayer, walk in faith, live a life of obedience, worship God, be in fellowship. That's how you resist him, putting on the full armor of the faith. James believed in the devil. John, the apostle, walked and talked with Jesus. He believed in the devil. First John 5.19. John makes several references to the devil. Here's one at the end of his little epistle. He said, the whole world lies in the power or in the lap of the evil one. The whole world, the unseen world, the evil world, the fallen world is under the control of Satan himself. He is real and he is in control. God has delegated to Satan some authority and control. That's why many of these things that happen that are bad in the world, they're not just naturally bad. Some of those things are supernaturally bad in the unseen world. And then Peter said this. This is very personal. Peter is talking to Christians that he pastored. And he gets very personal. He says, and this is two commands, be sober. Be sober, that has to do with think correctly. Get your thinking right and in order. This is a command. This is to Christians. Christians, you need to think right. You need to think in accordance with truth. About what? Well, about all things, including how you think about the devil. If you don't believe in the devil, you better start if you're a Christian. It's in the Bible. That's what Peter's saying. Be sober. Think correctly. Not only that, take action and be on the alert. Wake up, literally is the word. Think correctly about the devil and be ready to take action against the devil. How? Well, and he goes on, because you're at your adversary, your enemy, the devil, your enemy, your per Did you know you have an enemy? You know, some people get so they don't like having enemies that that kind of bothers them and hurts their feelings. They want to be people. Please. I don't have any enemies. They, I want everybody to like me too bad. If you're a Christian, there's a lot of things and people that don't like you. And the first one that hates your guts is the devil. He is your enemy. He will never be your friend. He wants your destruction and your demise. That's why Peter said, Think properly. Be on the alert. Your enemy, your personal enemy, the devil, prowls around in the spiritual world like a roaring, voracious lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to rip your life to shreds. He wants to destroy your personal walk with Christ. He wants you to get uh, 
pulled down into compromising sin. He wants you to not read your Bible. He wants you to be totally depressed. He wants to rip your family apart. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationship with your children. He wants to mar your testimony in the church and in the world. And he's hell-bent on it continually. Devour. And then Peter said, but resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Doing the six things that I said earlier. You don't say, uh, devil, where are you? I cast you out. De- you don't do that. If you're paying attention, if maybe you've heard, you've experienced in the past at some time, a, Christian, a well-meaning Christian who's praying, dear God, and they start praying. And then in the middle of their prayer, and I, and I, I curse you, Satan, and Satan, I bind you. And they start talking to Satan in their prayer. So here's a reminder. When you pray, pray to God, not to Satan. That's just like one of the basics of prayer. Don't let him in and don't talk to Satan while you're praying. By the way, there is not one example in the Bible of a believer praying and while they're praying, they're talking to the devil. Don't do it. Resist him through obedience and entrust yourself to God. God will protect you from the devil. Uh, And then finally, Paul, uh, in Ephesians 2, he said that Satan is uh, in charge of this world and he actually was in charge of our lives before we got saved. We were slaves of Satan. And we acted in gross immorality of all kinds because we belonged to Satan. And then Paul goes on at the end of, at the end of Ephesians to guard against Satan. And he says that uh, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers in this world because, so that they can't believe the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Paul, through the Spirit, unbelievers cannot, so think of it, maybe you know an unbeliever who doesn't believe in the gospel, they're not a Christian. And you've been praying for them and witnessing to them, and they just, they don't get it. They don't want it, they resist it, they're rebellious, whatever, making excuses. Why will they not believe? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That is satanic blindness. That is supernatural blindness. The unbeliever, they're not even aware of it. If you are not a Christian here today, you have been blinded by Satan, supernaturally. That you can't even see the truth. It's what the Bible teaches. And there's only one thing that can rip away supernatural satanic blinders so that you can see spiritual truth. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else can do that. And that's what Paul said. He blinds unbelievers. And he also appears as an angel of light. Get that. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Satan masquerades appearing to look like that which is good from God and true. Do you know that two of the most formidable, dangerous, false religions in the world in history began, supposedly, according to their founders, from a vision from a heavenly angel that appeared to them in light? Read the story of the Quran and Muhammad and Islam and how his religion began. He was visited by an angel of light. Paul says in Second Corinthians 11 that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Seeking to deceive. It's frightening, but if you're a Christian, you don't need to be frightened. Because if you're a Christian, the moment you believe in the gospel, in G- the good news about Jesus Christ, recognizing that you're sinful, I was sinful, I am sinful, I'm separated from God because of my sin, I can't be accepted by God in my sin because he is holy and I am not, I can't work my way to God by doing good things, there's nothing... I can do to work my way into favor with God. It has to be a supernatural work that God does. And it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. God the Father sent Jesus the Son as the God-man to live a perfect life, 
without sin to go to the cross and to die on the cross for sinners as their substitute. So that God, when Jesus was on the cross, God the Father punished Jesus on the cross for six hours. Punishing Jesus for the sins of the world. For anybody that would believe in Jesus as their substitute. Then Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. He reigns on highest King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's out with the gospel trying to woo sinners unto himself. That's the only thing that can save you, save me, from sin and Satan. And it's by what Jesus did, not but what I do. Going to church is not going to save you. Doing good works is not going to save you. Saying more prayers is not going to save you. It's not about what we do. It is about what God did. What God requires of us is to repent of our sin. And to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to heaven. As the Lord of Lords. You do that. You believe that. You pray that in your own heart to Almighty God. Asking him to save you in light of Jesus' work. He will save you instantaneously on the spot, supernaturally, invisibly in your own heart. He will make you a new creature. He will forgive all of your sin. He will put his Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit will live inside of you as long as you are on this earth. It's amazing. So every Christian that is a true Christian has the Spirit of God literally living inside of them. Well, they don't act like it. Yeah, I know. Because we still have sin living in us. And there's a daily battle. But the Spirit of God is still there, and He wants us to be obedient and led by Him. So going back to Acts 16. So it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, demon-possessed, met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants, they're slaves of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And I just want to close with this as we get to have some baptisms now. When I think about the story, and by the way, this is the third time that satanic opposition has come up in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and, and Peter. And then you can go to the Gospels and read those stories where it says Jesus, a, a demon-possessed man came across Jesus and Jesus rebuked the demon. And it says that Jesus healed many People who were demon-possessed. Many! I'm thinking, wait, you know, in today's world, nobody believes in demons. Where are all the demon-possessed people today, by the way? There doesn't seem to be any, does there? We look around and nobody's talking about demon possession. At least in the world. Why is that? Nobody believes in demons anymore. Nobody believes in Satan anymore. When actually, are there demon-possessed people around today? Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever interact with demon-possessed people? Yeah, all the time and the problem is most of the time we don't know it we can't discern it we, we are not apostles we don't have the the same gift that you have of discerning of the spirits but in terms of the the behavior their opposition and hatred for god and the gospel and jesus and the bible and truth that is a manifestation of great hatred and hostility hostility that is rooted in satan himself he is a liar and a deceiver and a rebel to the core and Jesus even said, anybody that is not a believer, anybody that is not a believer, John chapter 8, is actually a child of the devil. They belong to him. They don't realize it. They're being deceived by Satan, but they don't realize it. We only believe that by faith because it's in the Bible as Christians. But the unbeliever doesn't realize it. So it's probably not a good idea to go up to your sister-in-law, who's not a Christian yet, you've been praying for 10 years. You're of your father, the devil at the Thanksgiving dinner table. That probably isn't the best time to do that kind of a thing. As opposed to lovingly inquire, 
First, the most important thing they need is the gospel. And that's a personal, prayerful, private conversation. That's where it needs to start. And then if they are receptive and they want to know more, then yes, you open up these mysterious truths in the Bible that only a believer can understand or an unbeliever can understand with the aid of the Holy Spirit. That's what God has called us to do. So I'll give you some homework for today and this week. In light of biblical truth, be aware of the devil. Number two, from this day forward, for the next week, for the next seven days, see if you can at some time during the day pray for God's protection against the devil in all areas of your life. And that's, that's enough homework right there. And we'll see how we do next week. So let's go ahead and go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and the blessed church, the body of Christ, your truth. Thank you for this true historical story from 2,000 years ago in the life of Paul. And the lessons we can learn from it. Thank you for the reminder that Satan is real just as the Bible teaches. You, you warned us about him. You want us to be aware of him. As Christians, we don't need to fear him. But, Father, we want to keep depending upon you for protection against the devil. And we know you will always, always fulfill your promises. So we rest and we trust in you and your power, knowing that if we're Christians, the Spirit lives in us. And greater is he who lives in us than the evil one who lives in the world. We say all of this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.